Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Monday, we look back at the legacy of the hawk, Ronnie Hawkins, and just how much he helped shape rock and roll in this country. We talked to a Vancouver-based Indigenous filmmaker about how a pair of moccasins got him booted from a premiere at the prestigious Cannes Film Festival and how it turned into a story with both a learning moment and a positive ending. We learn if tough new gun legislation proposed by the federal government, including a freeze on the importing, buying and selling of handguns, is good policy or just good politics. But first, retired Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour released a scathing report today on the Canadian Armed Forces' resistance to change, despite decades of scandals, criticism and broken promises around sexual misconduct. It comes with 48 recommendations. We hear from a military sexual assault survivor about whether this time it will in fact bring about change. We'll start in Ottawa tonight, though. Retired Supreme Court Justice Louise Arbour released a scathing report on the Canadian Armed Forces' resistance to change despite decades of scandals, criticism, and broken promises about sexual assault in its ranks. She makes 48 recommendations, saying all along it's long past time for the military to scrap traditions and structures that perpetuate a sexualized culture. Here's Arbour. Meaningful change will rest on the political will and the determination of civilians who oversee the Canadian Armed Forces. Still, it will not happen without the support of CAF leaders and ultimately without the goodwill of all its members who are every day entrusted with the duty to protect our country and who do so on our behalf. Louise Arbour there on her 48 recommendations and 400-page report. She recommends changes to how the CAF recruits, trains and promotes members on how to on sexual discrimination and harassment and assault cases are reported, um, monitored and handled. Rather, changes to how sexual discrimination, harassment, and assault cases are reported, monitored, and handled. Well, Defense Minister Anita Anand was there today. Of course, uh, she says they're moving quickly on 17 of the recommendations. Studying the rest, she says, unlike similar previous reports, this one will not sit on a shelf. In this moment in time, when the world appears to be growing darker, we must grab the bull by the horns and make these changes now. Now, here's one case that summarizes a lot of this. Annalise Shamoun is a former captain in the Canadian Forces. Her husband, Kevin, is a retired Special Forces major. In 2017, a former colleague of her husband's and family friend was convicted in civilian court on six criminal counts, including sexual assault against Annalise, after twice unlawfully entering the couple's home and assaulting her. But during sentencing, his superiors provided character references to him, despite the conviction and the severity of the crime. And the couple says they were offered very little to no support. Annalise uh, Shamoon joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ben. For listeners who may not be familiar with with your story, uh, in many ways, it kind of encapsulates the issue, um, both both the crime itself and, and then the response from leadership afterwards. Yeah, that's right. It was important for me to tell my story because um, because of that, um, there has been many other people affected by sexual assault and sexual harassment in the military. But um, there was just the something about the way that my story was handled, my case was handled, that really um, it illustrated that it's not just a few bad apples. And it's not also um, just a women's issue because this affected both my husband and I. Like we, we both went through um, that sense of institutional betrayal. And so I wanted to really be able to 
illustrate how, you know, it's not it's not just those few bad apples, but it's that entire culture and the leadership and the, the structure, the system around it that enables it to keep on happening and also makes the experience so much worse after the fact. Tell me about that, because in this case, this was a friend of yours. This was a comrade of your husband's who was convicted in this case of sexual assault. And then after that, during his sentencing, he was receiving um, letters of, uh, you know, not letters of accommodation, but letters of reference from from leadership. Um, that must have been a huge betrayal to both you and your husband. Yeah, absolutely. And I had been out of the military for a number of years by the time he was convicted, but my husband was still serving. And it was within his own chain of command that this person was um, was supported instead of us and also my husband's regiment, which, you know, like I'm considered part of the regimental family. And so in that sense, like our family chose to support someone else who had hurt us instead of hurting instead of supporting us and when you look back at it what was what was the problem was it was it a culture thing really was it this inability to take what had happened to you and so many others seriously yeah um that's a such a great question i think it was so uncomfortable to think about what had happened and i mean no story is ever as black and white as we want to think and there's different versions of the story and when the chain of command or when other people aren't curious to find out what really happened they take the the point of view um, or the version that was told to them by the person closest to them then they really risk uh, injuring a party that's already been injured and so I think inability to think about the situation in a nuanced way, um, an inability to look deeper at the situation, and just like an overall discomfort um, with the topic itself. Today, it's, it's it, Justice Arbor released her report, um, one that we've been waiting for for quite a while. It's not the first of these reports, obviously. Did you hear what you wanted to hear today from her? Um. I did like the report. Uh, well, I haven't gone through it in detail. The recommendations are very solid. Um, and they're in line with conversations that we've been having for a long time. And they're in line with recommendations that other militaries around the world have made and have even been made by previous reports. So in that sense, they're, it's not new. It is very solid. I think what's new here today is that sense that it's actually going to be acted upon. There is that accountability piece where the military is held accountable by civilian oversight, by the government, and we as citizens can hold our government accountable to make sure that this happens. And also the leaders that we have in place right now, you can, you can see like they're passionate about making sure this happens. So between the accountability and I mean, the external oversight monitoring accountability, but also just the personal accountability that our most senior leaders have. I think this is going to be different. When you look at the at how much Justice Arbor talked about the culture within the military, the hierarchical structure of it, mm-hmm. for instance, um, did that resonate with you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because we we see like throughout our society that there's issues with abuse of power and misogyny and sexism, 
but when there's a hierarchical organization and there's just like that power differential, the abuses can be that much more egregious and people can get away with it longer and longer. Whereas in a flatter structured organization or in a, in a more informal structure, there isn't the same ability to abuse power over other people. Um, what would you like to see done? I mean, a lot of these recommendations, uh, the government's already promised to enact 17 already. They're going to look at the other 48. Um, do you get the impression that this time around, and we heard from the defense minister today, that there is a real commitment from that, and you've mentioned it from the civilian oversight, and you think that will have an impact, that this large ship is going to turn? Yeah, absolutely. Um, these are structural changes for the most part, um, which are needed in order to support the cultural changes and like the how do we do things day to day and what language do we use and some of the other pieces that have been coming out around dress regulations um, that are already happening. And so this isn't enough. These, these structural pieces, the systemic pieces aren't enough to turn the ship, but it's an important um, support for the other initiatives. I'm speaking with Annalise Shamoon. She's a military sexual assault survivor now involved in leadership coaching and culture change as well, a former army captain. Um, we've been talking about uh, the recommendations made today by Madam Justice Louise Arbour uh, to tackle uh, military sexual assault. She's made 48 recommendations, uh, a lot of them about scrapping traditions that have perpetuated a sexualized culture within the military, uh, really asking for a full-on culture change as well as several specific recommendations about how to make that happen. After this, we'll talk a bit more just about what needs to be seen early on to make sure that this is headed in the right direction, that this isn't another report that will simply be uh, nodded and agreed to, then tucked away and ignored. That's after this. Speaking with Annalise Shamoon, she's a former uh, captain in the Canadian Forces in the Army. Her husband is also a former Special Forces major. Um, she is a military sexual assault survivor, now involved in leadership coaching and culture change. We're talking about the report released today by Madam Justice Arbour uh, to tackle uh, military sexual assault and all that surrounds it. Uh, 48 recommendations made today, a very scathing report in many ways. Uh, the Defence Minister Anita end has already said that uh, her department will work on making sure that all these recommendations, or most of them are implemented, implemented quickly. Uh, Annalise, where, where, do, where do you begin? Uh, you know, there are a lot of recommendations made today about transferring all sexual assault cases to civilian courts. Yours was, in fact, handled uh, by a civilian court. Um, you know, there were other recommendations made around the way uh, military members are taught, the way that they're, you know, the way language is used within the military. Where do you think we have to begin to see these changes happen quickly? I mean, I think at, at all levels, um, what I think about the most is um, when I entered into the military, I learned the culture and it wasn't through PowerPoints. It wasn't through formal training. Like no one ever said, if you do this job, you're less valuable than people who do this other job. But that somehow was taught to us. And um, and it was through the culture. It's through the way we treat people differently and the way that we value people differently, the way we define what leadership is and the, and the people who get the opportunity to um, have leadership roles over other people who might not lead in as aggressive of a way. And so there was no PowerPoint that said you have to behave this way, but the culture taught us that certain things were more acceptable or more valuable than others. And that's something that I'm really excited to see change. Yeah, you refer to it as a culture of denial, deflection, and blaming the victim. Uh, tell me about that. How, how did that work? 
Um, I think that it's tough for people who, I'm going to use the word privilege here, which is like not very um, popular word, but I think that some of some of us have advantages that other people don't have. And that's just another way of saying privilege. And so for the people who don't suffer from these disadvantages, it's hard for them to understand that other people do and to um, to sort of make space for that and to say, well, I've worked hard too. Like, like you've worked hard, I've worked hard, we've all worked hard without truly understanding that some people are at um, at a systemic or a structural disadvantage. And so I think that's where a lot of the denial comes from. It's not, um, it's not true denial in the overt sense as much as just like not being aware that the experience of being in the military is different depending on your background or demographic factors. Are you disappointed that, that given the number of reports that have been written and released, even since your time in the military, that the institution itself has never been able to find an answer to this problem, considering it was aware of what was going on to, to a fairly great extent long before Justice Arbor ever pointed out anything out? Um, objectively, it's disappointing, but I mean, I was in the military since 1997, and the, the McLean's article that came out that year about McLean, about rape in the military. And even then, I didn't see it. And so I have to look at my own inability to understand, um, like we describe culture as the water that we're swimming in, and like fish don't even know that they're swimming in water. And I didn't know. And when the Deschamps report came out in 2015, like a lot of women also were like, what is she talking about? And so I get it. Like, I get that it takes a long time to change the culture because first we have to become aware of what the culture is and what's wrong with it. So as disappointing as it is, and as much as we can go back and say, we should have known it's, it's so much more complex than that. And then once we do see it, um, there's still so many barriers to change. It's, it, you know, like we all know that we should like live a healthier lifestyle, or maybe we should quit smoking or drink more water or, or, floss our teeth but um but it's not easy to just make those changes and i think that's the same thing that has played out in the military um it's one thing to to know that we sort of should but how do we actually implement that into our lives what would you tell a young woman if they came to you today and expressed an interest in joining the forces i would just want her to um, have her eyes wide open and know what she was getting into, know her own value, um, know what her rights are. And um, and for men and women alike, just to understand um, what behavior is acceptable and not acceptable. Because I think we all hurt people accidentally and, um, and we get hurt without even knowing that we're being hurt. Like if, for me, it was part of the culture to be treated that way. And so we don't always we don't always have our eyes wide open on those things. But um, for young people to be able to stand in their own value and to have that that confidence and know that they deserve to be treated with dignity and what that feels like, that's what I would want for them. Both you and your husband gave a lot of your lives to the Canadian military. Uh, have you been able to reconcile all that happened? Do, do you do you have? Um, are you still proud to have served? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's um, there's what the institution is meant to be and what it represents, and then there's the people 
in it who are flawed and imperfect. And um, one thing that came out of the report today was about the military college system. And it's, I think it's a great idea. And I love the idea of that particular institution, but the execution hasn't been there. And the you know, human beings being involved in it have made it imperfect. And so, I mean, we can always do better, but the institution, like, is, I still believe in the institution. So was to, as a last question, is, is today a good day for, for you and other survivors and for all the many that would look at a career in the military, but may have been put off by ideas that it's just not for them? I think today is a good day. It's not a day to let our guard down or to to say like everything is fixed now and wash our hands of it, but it is a day um, to, to mark as, um, as a milestone along this journey that we're all on together. Annalise uh, Shamoon, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks, Ben. I grew up knowing about Ronnie Hawkins because my dad was a huge fan of the band. So uh, his name would often come up in association with the band. But of course, he mentored many others, had a successful career of his own. Um, basically, the father of rock and roll in Canada, not to be overly enthusiastic about this, but in many ways he was. He passed away Sunday morning. He was 87 years old, born in Arkansas, but again, you know, in many ways made his big mark in this country. Um when he moved here in the late fifties, he had an order of Canada. <laughs> he became really quite a name in his adopted country, but elsewhere too. I mean, it was covered today in the New York times in Rolling Stone. I mean, he was huge in a lot of places. Um, and part of it too was, was the fact that he'd mentored all these great artists over time. Uh, and also just his own kind of style that was, uh, that was, well, I'll let, I'll let my next guest describe it. He probably knows more about this than I do. Eric Alper is a music publicist, a serious XM host, uh, joins us tonight from Toronto. Thanks so much for staying up late, Eric, as always. No problem. What else am I going to do? I mean, let's talk about <laughs> Ronnie Hawkins. You actually did a really great job. I loved Ronnie Hawkins. I mean, he was, he's, me to too. me, he was the embodiment of that era, right? Of that sort of rockabilly era. But then he became so much more to, to this country, didn't he? Yeah, you know, growing up in, in, in Arkansas when he was, you know, a late teenager, early 20s, he started a bar um, and he was booking artists like Jerry Lee Lewis and Roy Orbison and Conway Twitty, which him and Conway became really, really good friends. And so he kind of, you know, built this scene around that state when it came to booking artists. And Conway Twitty was supposed to be doing something like a six-month residency in Hamilton, Ontario, and, and various um, cities and towns um, nearby. Um, but he couldn't do it at the last minute. And so the, the owner said, well, if you can find somebody to replace you, I'll get you out of your contract. And so Conway called Ronnie. And Ronnie didn't know the first thing really about Canada. Most Americans don't even today. Um, but he came up here and with his rockabilly music, I mean, this is the beginning of rock and roll. Like there was no infrastructure. There's no Canadian content way before much music ever existed. Um, blew the place away in Hamilton and, uh, you know, found a real love of Canada and the people and especially a home for his music. And that's where he ended up staying all of these years for over six decades. Because, I mean, if you look at his chart history, it's not exactly Elvis, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty limited in terms of just the impact he had in terms of his own success on the charts. 
but but his success as an as a mentor here and just as a personality and as a as a rock and roller if i can use that term uh seemed to be far greater than than radio play and chart success he had one top 40 chart hit on the billboard hot 100 and that was with Mary Lou back in 1959. So if you look at his chart success, no, it's nothing really mind-blowing. In fact, even Robbie Robertson this weekend said that, you know, Ronnie wasn't the greatest singer in the world, and he wasn't the greatest songwriter in the world, but what he was, he had a great eye and ear for talent. And he was a good leader when it came to putting people together. And when he first met the guys in the band before they were in the band and when uh, um, to form his backing band, the Hawks, um, that was it. You know, that was um, meshing and molding different personalities into into the group and uh, made them work gave them their 10,000 hours worth of practice and they became great. And when they left Ronnie to go with Bob Dylan, when Bob was thinking about going electric instead of, you know, acoustic folk, um, changed their name to the band and literally changed music overnight. You know, there's no alternative country. There's no Americana. There's no folk. There's no real rock and roll as we know it without the band and you can thank ronnie hawkins for that and he got to see all of this which is amazing most artists you know don't get those accolades or those awards like the order of canada or the junior hall of fame or canada's walk of fame um until sometimes after they're passed away but ronnie got to see the success not only of the band but of other people he mentored like David Clayton Thomas and Larry Gowan and Burton Cummings. And that scene in Yorkville, Ontario, just in Toronto, um, you know, with Leona Boyd and Murray McLaughlin and Bruce Coburn and Neil Young and Joni and, and all of these artists, he was right in the middle of all of that because of his love of music and because of his eyes and ears for talent. And I guess what he had that so few other people had it and what was a nascent industry here was that he had experience. He knew how it worked. He had this idea. He knew what it took to make money. Although there's a very funny story that he told about sending one of his bands off to the U.S. and just telling them not to say you're Canadian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, they, they said that, you know, if you ever get stopped, you know, just say that you're from Mississauga, Tennessee because these people wouldn't even know the difference anyway. Um, but, you know, his larger-than-life personality and his amazing sense of humor and his kindness and his gratitude reached even John Lennon and Yoko Ono when they were doing bed-ins across the world where they would be, you know, hanging out in their bed in hotel rooms talking about world peace to various members of the media. Um they came up to Toronto and stayed in Ronnie Hawkins' place. And it was the first time that John Lennon had actually seen snow and went outside and frolicked with Yoko in the snow. And when Ronnie was asked about it, you know, what was his greatest memory of hanging out with John Lennon in 1969? He, he said the phone bill was astounding because they didn't have roaming from home. It was everything was so landline. So the ability for somebody like John Lennon to pay accolades and you know we know that john lennon loved the early rock and roll he loved eddie cochran loved buddy holly and of course he loved ronnie hawkins it's 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 hard to imagine that there will be another 
generation of folks like Ronnie, like Ronnie Hawkins and that, you know, that, that sort of those larger than life characters are kind of embodied something for so many years. Um, it's hard to imagine that, that we'll ever see the likes of Ronnie Hawkins again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the only one that comes close, and I know listeners are going to start throwing things at the radio when I say this, <laughs> but the only one that might come close is Drake. Because with Drake, not only does he have the yes. chart success, he's sitting at something like 280 Billboard Hot 100 hits. But for Drake to notice you on social media and for you as an artist to be within that circle of his record label and getting touched by the hand of him for his management to assist and bookings and showing up at his shows, he's kind of reminding me a little bit about Ronnie is that Drake has a real good eye for talent as well, brings in all sorts of of amazing artists like Rihanna and uh, and Stevie Wonder to his shows in Toronto. So he's kind of like his own center of attention as well. And you know, when you get when you kind of get looked at by Drake, it can kind of elevate you over you know the thousands of other artists that are struggling to get some attention. So I know it's not the same music. I know it's not the same era. But yeah, you know, Ronnie, there, there's never going to be another one. They, uh, just his TV show in the 70s brought country music and roots and folk music to a whole generation of people who might have just only grown up with, say, hee-haw. But you got to see these Canadian artists appearing on the national program for the first time. And that alone is, is worthy of our attention. Eric, you're in this business. What is it about someone like a Ronnie Hawkins that can spot talent? What is it that it takes to be able to be a great spotter of talent in this business? Because you hear so much music. And of course, some people just, you, you see them and think, of course, they're great. But obviously he had, he just knew that there was something else there. Everything has to connect. Um, the, and and as, as little as I would love to say, well, you know, the music is only somewhat part of it because it actually is. So many things have to go right. You have to have the right team around you. You have to have the right manager that can push buttons and make things happen and get the right concerts. You know, when to open and when to headline. What cities do you go in? You have to have the right booking agents, too, you know, to know that you're not going to be playing some, you know, some crappy bar on a Thursday night wasting your time when you can take that day off and rest for the really big show on, on Friday. It's the look of the band. It's, you know, everything from the hairstyles to the beards and the mustaches and the clothes you wear to how you look in photographs. Um, all of that has to connect with your audience because musicians write all of their music in complete isolation away from the general public and anybody else. And it's amazing that when you release it, you can have tens of millions of people all connect to your music. So the music is part of it, but you have to kind of grab them in other ways with controversy or just giving good quotes in the media. And certainly all of those artists that Ronnie connected with had all of that. We believed in them back in an era where you believed in musicians far more than you did for politicians. And now I'm not so sure that people believe in musicians anymore. Well, certainly not like they believed in the band, I don't think, or Dylan and the band at the, at the time. Um, is that his great legacy, the band? Is that, is that sort of what propelled him to, to the legend that he, that he is, was? Yeah, yeah. And they never forgot it either. You know, not only did they invite him to open up 
um, that San Francisco show, which was the final band show that was filmed later on by Martin Scorsese for The Last Waltz. If you watch that footage of them performing, it's it's like kids in the candy store. They are having so much fun um, you know, watching Robbie Robertson smile from, from ear to ear is something that you rarely see in this very serious musician. And in fact, the band invited Ronnie to play um, with them when Roger Waters of Pink Floyd did a concert during the fall of the Berlin Wall. And that was in the 80s and in the 90s. So all those years later, they still had immense respect for the man that put that band together. So, yeah, I think at the end of it all, you know, it might, you know, the band is somewhere in the middle of his legacy, but certainly it's probably one of the biggest. I mean, it would be one of the biggest in anybody's career. I was watching a video of Who Do You Love with uh, with Ronnie and the band from uh, from that last Waltz movie. Uh, Eric Alper, as always, thank you so much for your time. Great to talk about uh, Ronnie Hawkins today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. You might have seen this um, next story over the weekend, my next guest. To say that Kelvin Redvers has already had a storied career is a bit of an understatement. The member of the Dene Nation from the Northwest Territories uh, and Vancouver-based filmmaker and producer has a shelf full of awards already. His first short film, Dancing Cop, was featured at the Toronto International Film Festival. So it was no surprise that a trip to the most prestigious, prestigious film festival in the world would be a logical step. Can. I've never been. It looks like fun. Um... So Redvers, Redvers was there with a group of six Indigenous filmmakers in a business program at Capilano University uh, with the backing of the Indigenous Screen Office and Telefilm. But when it came time to walk the red carpet for a premiere on Sunday, he thought he'd wear a piece of home for the big occasion. And that exposed some cracks in the festival's allowances for cultural formal wear, footwear to be specific. I won't give away what happened next because... Uh, Kelvin tells the story much better than I ever will. So joining me now is Kelvin Redvers. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Um, what was it like to be in Cannes? I mean, it, it, it always looks like such a great event from the outside. And you're a filmmaker. What was it like to finally set foot in the, uh, I guess, sort of the, the, the high church of film? <laughs> yeah, your assessment is correct. Uh, it was uh, staggering and incredible to be able to be um, at part of this festival. Also, just the whole area where this festival takes in is, like, absolutely beautiful. Um, and just to feel that, you know, you're there with the world, basically. Like, there's um, folks from all over, everywhere, every corner of the earth, everybody who works in the film industry, they all kind of gather at Cannes. And so just being there was a huge honor. Um, and especially to be there with a bunch of other Indigenous filmmakers, you know. The whole goal is that there just isn't a ton of representation um, you know, in the world media scene when it comes to Indigenous folks. And especially when it comes to producers, there's um, a bit of a vacuum that there really needs to be more. And so we're a part of this wonderful program, as you mentioned, through Capilano and supported by, you know, Warner Media and all the folks that you mentioned. And so, you know, we're there to bring indigeneity to the festival, but also for us to promote our own projects. Um, you know, uh, all six of us have what I think are some pretty great projects on the go. And so, so we were there to meet with distributors and sales agents, and really the entire uh, trip generally was a, was a huge success in terms of us, you know, coming home with contacts and, and business cards and, you know, ready to take over the media industry with an Indigenous perspective. That's ultimately the goal, and I think we're on the way. Um, but there definitely, um, there's a few bumps along the way. 
Yeah, I, I, I really will get to the bumps for sure. Was there a lot of interest there in, in, in the work you're doing and, and, and what you're, what you're bringing to the table? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think generally there, there's, there, there has been kind of a, a turning point that has been hit in terms of the kind of appetite for like diverse voices in world cinema. And that's actually kind of what people are looking for now is like folks are actually searching for authenticity and searching for it from like, you know, the corners of the globe that often aren't heard from. And so, you know, there's always kind of buzzwords that are being passed around um, in terms of like what's being looked for, but like, you know, kind of really local authentic stories seem to be what people are looking for. And, um, you know, I, I had just shot my first feature film just a few weeks ago called Cold Road. Um, and so I was busy talking that up a little bit. And I'm also working on um, trying to raise interest in the next feature that I want to do, which uh, is going to be a uh, <laughs> indigenous rooftop hostage thriller. <laughs> and so... Uh, <laughs> There's a lot of interest in genre films right now, and, and it was yeah. incredible how many folks were, were, were quite intrigued at this project I have going on, and so it's been kind of fun to just pitch to these bigwigs, you know? I see. <laughs> Kelvin, if that's your elevator pitch, it's good. It's good. <laughs> well, well, thank you. I, uh, I'm pretty stoked um, for it. It's going to be expensive, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> aim high. Um, so you get invited to a premiere on Sunday night, um, and, and then this other story, The Bump, begins. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, to give some context, I, I've sort of known for several weeks that this trip was upcoming and um, I, I've been to, you know, a few award shows here in BC. Um, I um, won a Jack Webster award, which is like a journalism award. And, and, you know, when I go to events like this, it's like, well, I want to reflect my culture because, you know, it's important to me. I'm, I'm from a little, little corner of the world up in Northwest Territories. And, I'm very proud to be Dene and, and growing up, you know, I was, I was involved with my culture and being on the land and, and sometimes clothing can be quite a big part of how you reflect yourself. And so in our family, moccasins had always had a really important place. Uh, my grandma, when she was alive, would take great care to make sure that every single one of us kids, me and my siblings had, you know, new moccasins that, that were well taken care of and beautifully beaded with fur um, and for a lot of Denny folks, moccasins are highly treasured and, you know, like, um, people, when they get married, they wear their moccasins and that's been happening. I, I had a, uh, a family friend reach out and sent his photo from the nineties when he got married in his moccasins and then a photo of his parents who got married in the thirties and his dad was wearing moccasins. <laughs> and so, uh, I was really excited to wear moccasins as I often do to, you know, formal events and ceremonial events. And especially because my sister is now the, uh, the family uh, creator of moccasins. And so she created, um, you know, a beautiful pair of moccasins for me and had gift them to me. And I was just ecstatic to be able to be able to go to the festival and reflect my culture. Um, now can has pretty strict, clothing rules when it comes to red carpet events. And I kind of knew that, you know, they sort of expect black suits, bow ties, and, you know, dresses. But there is always allowances for, you know, what, what's called, I guess, formal wear from different nationalities. So if someone shows up in a kilt, you know, they, they're, they're allowed in because there's a generalized understanding that a kilt is a formal piece of clothing to a Scottish person or someone, you know, in a, in a Indian traditional outfit, a sari will, will be allowed in. 
because it's generally understood that, you know, this is a formal piece of their clothing and, you know, they're not taking off people's turbans or things like that. And so my assumption was, well, this is, this is for me as a Denny person, the moccasin is that. So didn't really think that it was going to be much of an issue. <laughs> um, and so I arrived at, we, we were recommended to make sure that we take part in like at least one kind of what are the, the fancy schmancy red carpets, which I was really quite looking forward to. And so the earlier in that day, um, it was on the Sunday, I was supposed to get ready to go to this, uh, this red carpet events. And I planned my outfit ahead of time and tried my moccasins on and took a few photos with my cohort. And I was super stoked. And I sent it around to like our team and everybody was like, yeah, that looks awesome. <laughs> But, they uh, look great, got... by the way. I'll preface everyone to say they look great. They're white beaded. They're really great looking. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I wore mostly what it is that they expect, right? I, I had the black suit. I had the bow tie and the white shirt and the dress pants and everything. But instead of, you know, formal shoes, I had my formal moccasins. Um, and so I went to the red carpet, and there's several checkpoints to get to the red carpet. Um, you can't just sort of walk on. There's... Um, you know, gates with folks who check your tickets and also check the, the, the outfit you're wearing. And so I'd gone through the first gate, but I had my moccasins in a little bag because I, I didn't want to wear them too long on the pavement. And so once I got through the first checkpoint, I, I put on my moccasins and very quickly was flagged by the staff who said, uh, no, <laughs> you can't wear those. Um, and I tried explaining, no, like, yeah, but like, you know, this is, this is formal wear. Um, this is, this is for my culture. This isn't just me wearing this thing. This is important to my people. And they kind of hemmed and hawed and I got passed along to a few different folks in the hierarchy. And they kind of escorted me back to the first checkpoints um, after a few minutes. And I'd been texting with my, my gang, my cohort and our mentors and, and they were there. And one of our um, mentors, Trish from Screen Siren, who's kind of helping us navigate the festival speaks French and she's, tried explaining to the staff members that this isn't, you know, this isn't just like um, me trying to get away with something. Like it's an important traditional cultural piece of clothing. And they really weren't listening. And then there was a, um, almost a bouncer, you could call him, but like a really aggressive security guard that kind of hit his limit and very aggressively demanded immediately that I leave um, and to take my moccasins with me. And I had to leave, I had to leave, and he kind of got in my face. And uh, in a really intense, kind of sad, sad way, um, there's actually a photo that one of, one of our team, Christine from Screen Siren, had grabbed of me just kind of looking baffled and hurt at what was happening because I was sort of being treated like a criminal, but all I was trying to do was just wear my family's moccasins, you know, in this formal place. And so... Yeah. It seems, I mean, it's one thing to be sort of said, well, you know, we don't know, we don't understand. Um, yeah. It was like I was a vandal um, or like a criminal and he was like, get out. And I was like, <laughs> I just, I'm just trying to, you know, be a show off my culture. And he right. just was like, get out. I'm speaking with Kelvin Redvers. He's a uh, Dene indigenous film producer and filmmaker. Um, and he was just in Cannes, the... The grand, the sort of the, the, not to use an old term, but sort of the granddaddy of all film festivals, the most prestigious <laughs> film festival in the world, and uh, was booted off the red carpet uh, for wearing a pair of moccasins that his sister had made for him that he was wearing for the occasion uh, to bring a little piece of home, a piece of culture, 
And that is by many, under most circumstances, completely allowed at Cannes. But it turned out in this circumstance, it was not. We'll get to the fact that there was a bit of a learning moment and a, and a, and a bit of a positive ending to all this. And I'll let Kelvin finish his story when we get back. I have the pleasure of having Kelvin Redvers on the show this half hour. We're talking about his recent trip to the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, Kelvin is a uh, from the Dene Nation in the Northwest Territories, born and raised, but um, a Vancouver-based producer and filmmaker. Uh, and was there uh, doing a lot of stuff, but wore moccasins that his sister had made him on the red carpet at Cannes, and it ended up being ejected by quite aggressively by security. Um, how this this ended off i mean this night well must have been did you just go back to the hotel at that point kelvin and then try to figure no, it out so that that night i i it, this possibly was going to be my only chance to to you know see a film at the palais the festival to palais and so i um switched into the shoes they thought would be appropriate um and went to the movie that said i kind of had a hard time watching it i was kind of distracted and um as you said, it was kind of a darker moment. Uh, I definitely wasn't very pleased, but I'm thankful in a lot of ways because the the team that I was with was really thoughtful, um, and they understood what had happened, and and that you know I didn't necessarily have the kind of energy or like you know the tenacity to sort of process this all, but they stood up for what had happened, and so um, Trish and Christine from Screen Siren and, and Carrie from the Indigenous Screen Office, some of the folks we were with in Telefilm, went to the festival brass and explained what happened and said, hey, this this is unacceptable. And, um, you know, what's what's absolutely incredible is that the the heads, some of the heads of the Cannes Film Festival agreed, and they agreed to sit in person uh, with me and um, a rep from the Indigenous Screen Office and with Telefilm to um, have a conversation and to apologize. And so the next day at like 2 p.m., less than 24 hours later, the, one of the heads of the Cannes Film Festival sat down in person to hear, you know, more or less this story um, and apologized for what this security guard had done and to hear sort of what it is like, you know, what this piece of clothing was. Because what was interesting to me is they, 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 they'd almost, they'd seemed to have had no awareness of, of this piece of clothing of a moccasin. And so they, you know, they, they would understand and speak to, you know, how things like kilts or, or saris and that kind of stuff is like, you know, accepted and understood, but they um, had never been too exposed to this. And, and, and they'd even said like, Oh, like, you know, even if you'd gotten through the sort of more formal um, hierarchy of getting to the, you know, whoever the decider is at the red carpet, that there, there's a good chance they would have still said no. Um, and I think it's just purely that, that, with a lack of indigenous representation at this festival, they literally didn't understand what it was that they were looking at. And I think they just thought that these were like, you know, slippers that were important to me as opposed to a cultural item, you know, right. that like has value to thousands of Dene, but also like not only the Dene, like, you know, so many cultures across all of North America, you know, this is an important um, clothing object and it can be both, you know, just like a household object, but also hold a lot of kind of sacred value and meaning. Um, and, you know, it's filled with cultural, um, you know, a, a lot of significance. And so it was also interesting because in some ways they were saying that, like, if I'd kind of been dressed head to toe in some sort of regalia, that they would have right. been more right. expectant, that that's what, you know, if I had a headdress and all sorts of stuff, that's like, oh, yeah, that's that's what a, a native person looks like. Yes, yes, come in. 
as opposed to, you know, something subtle and blended where, right. you know, I'm, I'm not going to bring, you know, I'm going to a film festival just to sit in the audience. You know, I think a moccasin is a, is a reasonable, small symbol of, of my culture. And it doesn't make sense always to dress in regalia. Um, now, if, if I'm, the, if I'm not mistaken though, I'm just, I'm running out of time. I'm sorry. I've, you did get to wear the moccasins on the red carpet. Did you not? <laughs> yeah. And so, so we yes. argued, we were like, Hey, yes, this, this is cultural. We need to have a conversation about this, you know, down the line and the indigenous green office folks are going to be in contact with them of the type of stuff that you could see an indigenous person wear. And they said, what would you like? And I said, I want to walk the red carpet with my moccasins. So <laughs> That's great. they got me the ticket for that night. My colleague Ryan also had a ticket, so him and I showed up. He had brought his moccasins for the same purpose, and now yep. both of us kind of had the, the right of way to wear them. We got to the gate, and the first person was like, nope, can't wear those. But the second person, who had a bit more authority, saw us, knew what was going on, and waved us through. I saw uh, the photo. It's a great yeah. photo. <laughs> it was probably the best part of the festival for them to say, yep, let them in and to be able to stroll up to the red carpets with our moccasins to show off our culture and um, to take some classy photos. Cause I think the whole look is pretty classy and I'm glad that we got good. to reflect it. Yeah. Yeah. You look in Marion Cotillard was wearing combat boots. You know, I thought it was, um, <laughs> yeah. I only, I only have about 40 seconds. So I, I usually try not to ask the last question, but overall a good experience, despite uh, there was, you know, in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, for sure. I, I'm excited. I'm excited for all of the movies that are going to come out of this from our, our crew of, of, of filmmakers. Like I think in the coming years, you're going to see the, the, the fruits of the labor of a trip like this. And thanks to all the support that we've been getting um, for us to be able to do this. And this, this conversation has been happening around the world. Now the story is like everywhere, uh, literally across the globe. And I'm glad that people are talking about indigenous footwear or like indigenous cultural items and where they belong and that they do belong in places like him. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm glad it ended better than it began for the red carpet. Calvin, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Good luck with, uh, with both the first uh, film you finished and the hostage one on the roof. That sounds fascinating. Look forward <laughs> yeah, to it. Sure. Keep an eye out for cold road and don't look down coming to theaters. Near All right. <laughs> don't look down. All right. Calvin Redvers. Thank you so much. Thank you. So it was hardly surprising today that we learned that the federal liberal government were going to announce some tough new gun laws. It seems to be a bit of a trend. Big shooting, high profile, talk about gun legislation, out come the new gun laws. So sure enough, there was Prime Minister Trudeau today, flanked by his ministers, as well as a lot of um, survivors or families of survivors of gun violence in this country, to announce what they called tough new gun laws. Uh, this case, in this time around, a national freeze on the import, purchase, and selling of handguns. That's a central feature. Um, it would also take away gun licenses from people involved in acts of domestic violence or criminal harassment, such as stalking. And uh, there's more money to fight gun smuggling and trafficking by increasing criminal penalties, providing more tools to investigate firearm crimes, and strengthening border measures. Here is the Prime Minister today. We're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere in Canada. As I mentioned, of course, comes at a high, at a time of high emotion following the, the horrible, 
horrible shooting in Uvalde, Texas, and the other one in Buffalo earlier this month. Uh, So more debate here. The Liberals warned in their 2021 election platform that American-style gun violence is rising in Canada, and the Prime Minister alluded to that today. By saying necessarily that uh, we are, in fact, seeing more handguns. Stats can reported that violent crime involving, involving firearms had increased from 2013 to 2019 after several years of decline. Um, and that uh, there was a 59% report said 59% of firearm related violent crimes involved handguns in 2020 with higher rates in urban centers. Here's the prime minister again. We'll keep moving on. I'll let you know what Prime Minister Trudeau said. Essentially, he said, we're suffering from American style gun violence and that this policy will help. But at the end of the day, again, the question always is, is this about politics or is this policy that will actually work? That's always the question when these announcements are made. So joining me now with more on that is Noah Schwartz. He's an assistant professor of political science at Concordia University who specializes in firearm policy. Thanks for your time, Noah. Thank you for having me, Ben. So this is um, a major announcement. Uh, What's been said and and, and what what really struck you about what was uh, proposed today? Yes, there's been a number of measures that have been introduced today um, on the firearms file. Uh, So, for example, I think the biggest one that people are going to latch on to the most is going to be the freeze on handgun ownership uh, in Canada. Um, This is sort of unique amongst firearms policies. Um, I I haven't heard of of a country implementing a freeze on ownership before. Uh, This is fairly new. Um, But there's also more details uh, on the buyback scheme for the uh, assault style weapons ban that the government introduced, uh, as well as a few other measures. Um, For example, the government uh, introduced red er, claims to be introducing red flag laws. This is sort of confusing since we've had red flag laws in Canada for about 30 years, Um, but it's a few changes and kind of try to repackage it as something new, um, as well as new new legislation on on magazines. Um, So for example, 30 years ago, once again, uh, Canada banned high capacity magazines. Um, Magazines that can be accepted by semi-automatic firearms are only allowed to hold up to five cartridges in Canada. Now, the way this is done now, because most of these magazines are imported from the United States, a much bigger gun market, is that they use metal rivets, um, So, uh, which can, you know, if you have a machine shop, if you have access to certain tools, they can be removed. Um, So you'll likely see new legislation on how these magazines can be. uh, uh. We know that this comes at at yet again another sensitive time around the gun debate, specifically with what's happened in the U.S. recently. If you can cut through what was what is new policy here and what is politics, uh, do you think this was overall uh, a solid set of, of announcements today? So I think this is a lot more politics than policy. If I'm being honest, um, it starts with the timing of the announcement. Um, you know, there was a tragedy in the United States recently. There's a lot of public frustration um, and, and a lot of public mourning and, and public sadness about what's happened in the United States. Um, we know that the United States is a very big specter in the Canadian. It looms large over the Canadian gun debate. Um, and we often see Canadian policymakers kind of trying to play off of that um, on, on, on both ends of the, of the spectrum. Um, I think this is very good politics. For Justin Trudeau. Um, most Canadians don't really understand the very, very stringent gun control laws that we have in place right now. Um, it's a very detail-oriented policy area, um, but also a very emotional one. Uh, so I do think it makes for good politics. The policy side, I'm not so convinced. Yeah, where would you see the policy side uh, falling short? Yeah, so for example, um, on, on 
the source of crime guns in Canada. Um, so it, it, a freeze on handgun ownership, it, it sounds off the cuff, uh, like something that would prevent violence. Um, but if we look at where handguns that are used in crimes are coming from in Canada, uh, it's largely the United States. Now, there's some holes in our data on this. Uh, we don't have a perfect understanding um, because obviously these are criminal markets. They don't answer surveys. <laughs> um, but we know that, that uh, by and large, the overwhelming majority of handguns being used in crime are coming from the United States. And that's because they're really easy to smuggle. They're very small. Um, if you're a police dog, they probably smell like machine parts. Um, so it's, it's hard to detect them. Um, and we see smugglers using a lot of really innovative techniques, um, hiding them in different parts of the car that aren't always searched, using drones to take them across the border. Um, so, so I think, it, you know, tackling the people who have already gone through the process to get a handgun license, which involves a course, it involves registration. In many provinces, it involves being members of a gun range, which could cost you up to 400 bucks a year. So these are people who have invented a lot, invested, sorry, a lot of time and money into their hobby. Um, and they're probably not the source of most of the crime guns we're seeing ending up on crime scenes in Canada. So in that case, how would a handgun ban um, affect crime rates in this country then if the majority of the guns that we're discussing aren't in fact legally purchased? Yeah, so this is part of the public misunderstanding on gun control. Gun control is really good at making it hard for, for bad faith actors to get access to firearms. That's why we don't see the sort of tragedies that we see in the United States as often here, because it's harder for a disgruntled teenager to you know, go into their parents' closet and pull out a rifle, right? We have safe storage laws here. That means you have to lock up your guns. Um, it's not, gun control is never going to mean that criminals will, it will be impossible for criminals to get their, their hands on guns. Um, it's become easier recently because there's a, such a proliferation of handguns in the United States. More and more states in the US have concealed carry laws, which means more people are buying concealable handguns that are easier to smuggle. Um, so I, I think what this is the effect that this is going to have uh, is it's just going to mean that, that the criminal gangs that are responsible for the lion's share of the rising crime that we're seeing are just going to source their guns from can, more, source more of their guns from across the border. So what other impacts could this ban then have if it's if it's simply more um, more work on those who already legally own them? Um, what will it have a positive impact at all? I, I can't see, uh, I think the, the magazine alteration element of it, I think we could see some positive impact there. There was a lot of, of good stuff about in investing in security at the border. Although I think, you know, we, we can catch a lot of the guns that are going to come across. We're never going to be able to seal the border. We share the world's largest undefended border with a country with the largest supply of civilian handguns. I think it's kind of a fiction that we can seal off the border. You think about how long drugs were, you know, how how tightly controlled drugs are and they're still flowing across the border. If you can smuggle cocaine, you can smuggle a handgun. Um, I think what's going to work is going to be investing in the communities where gun violence is most prevalent. These are communities that are, that are already suffering um, from high poverty rates, marginalization. Um, and I think that putting the money that we're, we're sort of wasting on these very visible, um, very flashy measures into these communities is going to pay a much larger, higher dividend when it comes to preventing violence. Um, Tell me about the the buyback because that one's been been out there talked about a lot since the uh, the ban on assault rifles was was announced. Uh, I don't know if I'm using the right terms for it because it feels like it's been announced a few times. Um, but there is a buyback plan in place. How, how would that work, and is that money well spent? 
Yeah. So uh, what's likely going to happen is that that uh, the government right now, they announced they're consulting with the industry on sort of what is going to be a fair price. Um, it's likely going to cost several billion dollars to buy back these firearms. Um, once again, this is another another example of, of, I think, the government pursuing style over substance. If you look at the list of the guns that were banned, for example, there are guns that are functionally equivalent. They use the exact same cartridge. They function in the exact same way that were not placed on the ban list. Right. Um, the guns that were placed on the ban list were generally guns that had been used in high profile crimes in Canada in the past, whereas sort of other semi-automatics capable of accepting magazines um, were not included in the ban. Um, so I, I'm a little bit confused about what the government thinks this ban is going to achieve. I'm speaking with Noah Schwartz. He's an assistant professor of political science at Concordia University in Montreal. He specializes in firearms policy. Uh, we're talking about the uh, the new gun control legislation tabled by the federal liberals today that includes a national freeze on the importing, buying, and selling of handguns. Um, also says it will take away gun licenses for people involved in acts of domestic and violence and criminal harassment, such as stalking. Uh, the prime minister made that announcement today in Ottawa. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about um, some of those other rules that, that have been announced today as well. Uh, overall, Noah so far saying that it's, it is a lot of, as always, a lot of style, perhaps over true substance. We'll also look at what could be some of the real solutions here, because I think everyone uh, wants this to be a safer country. We want to see gun violence reduced, uh, but we also want the policies to, to work. Uh, we'll be back with that. Speaking with Noah Schwartz, he's an assistant professor of political science at Concordia University in Montreal, who specializes in firearms policy, talking about uh, Ottawa's announcement today, the federal liberal government's announcement uh, that it will include a national freeze on the importing, buying and selling of handguns, also a bill that would take away gun licenses from people involved in acts of domestic violence or criminal harassment, such as stalking. Uh, no, I want to ask you about that latter one, because that, again, you talked a bit earlier about red flag laws already being in place and then a reannouncement today of some sorts. What about these the domestic violence rules? Are those new or those effective? Yeah, so I mean, the, part of the screening process when someone goes to buy a gun in Canada um, is to look for for domestic violence or evidence of domestic violence. The problem is that's kind of hard to ascertain. And the RCMP, fire, the Canadian Firearms Centre, doesn't have a lot of resources to do the heavy vetting that they actually have the legal capacity to do. They're allowed to do more vetting than they actually end up doing in practice. So for example, when you apply for a gun license in Canada, since um, for, for the past 30 years, since the Ecole Polytechnique uh, tragedy, um, you have to... Uh, you have to have the sign off of your your spouse or your significant uh, your significant other, um, or if you've had a recent breakup, you have to have the sign off of your your ex partner, right? So there's measures in place to try to catch people who are are going to do this uh, in a bad way. Um, I think we'll have to see. The devil's going to be in the details on this. I would love to see more resources investing in enforcing gun prohibitions against people who are involved in domestic abuse against people who are at risk of that. Um, but we're going to have to see that the the devil will be in the details there. So Noah, where is the disconnect here? Because I think if you pulled a lot of people uh, on the streets of Vancouver or Toronto about handgun ownership, they might say that a handgun, a national handgun freeze is, is a good idea. So where is the disconnect between a good idea and good policy here, do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's a, a really great question. Um, there's a lot of sort of public misunderstanding there, and, and this is reinforced by politicians um, often for uh, political to win political points um, that there are parallels that are drawn between Canada and the United States, right? We have an environment um, in the United States where there's a serious lack 
of gun regulation, right? And that leads obviously to higher crime rates, to more gun violence. Um, you have the inverse in Canada where handgun ownership is very, very heavily controlled and it's limited um, to people who want to practice sport shooting or collecting. It's very expensive uh, to become a handgun owner in Canada. It takes a lot of work. Um, and then generally the system does a good job of making sure that people uh, who shouldn't have handguns um, aren't getting them through legal means, right? Um, but there's a limit to what the, what the, the system can do. That's the unfortunate reality of it. When you, you, you've spoken to a lot of gun owners in this country uh, about, about sort of the, the reality of gun ownership here. Uh, how would you describe that to listeners who may not fully understand how it works in terms of, of just the, the, the onus on, 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 on them? And how do you think they're going to react to this latest, to this, these, this latest legislation? Yeah. So, I mean, let's say that you want to get involved in uh, target shooting with a pistol, which is an Olympic sport. We actually sent an Olympian, an Olympic athlete to the last Olympics um, to you compete in pistol shooting. Uh, if you want to get involved with that, you have to go, uh, you have to take a class. Uh, so you have to take your regular firearms license class and then an additional restricted firearms license class. The waiting list for those classes is generally going to be months long. Once you take the class, you apply for your license. Uh, there's a whole bunch of forms they have to fill out there. Um, and then you wait at least uh, generally another three months, sometimes a bit longer to get your license. Um, that's before you can even think about purchasing a firearm. Uh, when you go to the store to purchase a firearm, they contact the registrar of firearms, they contact the Canadian Firearms Centre, um, and they issue you an authorization uh, to be able to have that gun. That can sometimes take weeks, uh, so you actually have to come back. You're not going to leave with your handgun that day. Once you get that, you're allowed to take that handgun to the range that you are a member of. And remember, depending on where you live in the country, especially in big cities, range memberships can be up to about 400 bucks a year in some places. Um, that's the only place that you're legally allowed to take out that handgun and to load it. Um, so there's a lot of restrictions in place already on people who are handgun owners. And most of the people that I've spoken to um, are people that are involved in sporting leagues. They're involved in, in communities. Um, and these communities are going to be uh, pretty badly affected by this legislation. So, so Noah, what would good gun policy in this country actually look like then? Yeah, so good gun policy in this country um, would be tackling the root causes of violent crime. And the benefit of this is that it's not only good uh, gun policy, it's good policy in general. What we see the rise in handgun crime that the government is talking about is largely driven by criminal gangs in big cities. So we have to address the sort of push and pull factors that are um, making young people, especially young men, choose to get involved in criminal gangs. So during COVID-19, for example, we saw the decimation of after-school programs. This was, of course, necessary uh, to stop the spread of the virus, but it meant that, you know, if you are a wealthy teenager, uh, you're living in the suburbs, it means your parents are probably working from home. They're there to supervise you. You've got video games. You've got stuff to do. Uh, if you're living in an apartment with several other brothers and sisters, there's not a lot to do around the house. Uh, your parents are off because they're actually working on the front lines um, uh, in, in fighting the pandemic. You have a lot of time to occupy yourself. You also probably don't have a lot of money. Um, and if someone in your neighborhood comes along and says, hey, do you want to do a run for me? Uh, just take this package over here make some money. It sounds like a good deal. And then the story starts there. Um, so investing in programs that are going to divert young people, first thing, give them opportunities for recreation, give them opportunities for positive social experiences, but also divert people that have gotten into that lifestyle by providing them opportunities to leave the gang lifestyle and to reintegrate into society and into the economy in a positive way. And we've got a lot of programs. We've got a, a, like civil society groups in Canada that are working really hard to do that right now in big cities, and they're not getting money from the government. The very last thing that the government announced in their press conference 
was funding for community groups. 250 million sounds like a lot in actual terms. Once that money gets distributed, it's not going to be very much compared to billions used to buy back firearms that are in all likelihood not going to end up being used in crimes. So that's, I think that's what good firearms policy looks like in Canada. Noah Schwartz, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. 